Joining me in the studio, I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled to welcome the international best-selling author, Amanda Prowse. Good afternoon, young lady. Amanda, um, it really is an honour to have you here today. You have written so many books that have all been incredibly successful um, and on quite a varying different themes. But what I have noticed a, a running theme through all of the books is a strong woman. Yeah. Is that a conscious decision before you start writing your books yeah it very much is I think uh, I think women are incredible I think we're very often underrepresented I think we have this ability to multitask and to just handle very very difficult circumstances and juggle so much that I thought I really want to get that out there in fiction and uh, talk about the incredible lives that we lead. So yeah, it was, it was an obvious starting place for me. Speaking of struggling, um, you, you are a survivor of cancer. I Is am. that something you're happy to talk about? I am, yeah, I've had it three times. So yeah, I know, oh, I know, it's, not, it's just a horrible, horrible, rubbishy thing that affects us all. It's touched all our lives. You know, you're hard, you're hard pushed to meet someone in today's world that hasn't had their lives touched by this horrible disease. So it's almost becoming, I don't want to say the norm because it's not normal, it's a horrible, you know, it's a difficult, a difficult um, and life-sapping situation. But actually it's something that we are all sort of having to cope with. So I think the more we talk about it in a positive way to say, look, actually you can come out the other side. I mean, I'm 50 and when I was at school, if you got cancer, if someone's mum got cancer, it was a death sentence and it was a terrible, terrible thing. And I have a very healthy respect for it, but I refuse to be defined by it. And now, of course, that's not the case. Most cancers, you can either have life-prolonging um, treatment or life-saving treatment. You know, it, it doesn't mean you're going to die. I mean, look, look at me. I'm here all these years later. I got it when I was 28, first of all. Um, my odds weren't great, and I'm still here battling on. That's incredible mm. to hear a, a story of hope like that. You know, as you say, so many people have been touched by cancer, including myself. I lost my mum to cancer, and I lost my sister-in-law just last year, who was the same age as me. And I have always assumed and taken it as a death sentence. In fact, actually, my gran and my aunt, they all died of cancer. You mm. know, and, it, and as you say, it's one in three people are affected by it. So it is really Nearly positive. one in two nowadays. That's by twenty, by, they, they reckon by 2019, it will almost be a one in two, yeah. which is... That's scary, isn't it? Yeah, what is. kind of cancer did you have? Uh, bowels to start with. Okay, yeah. and yeah. is that um, uh, a fairly common or, or rare? It, it's rare in someone my age. Right, okay. And rare in someone at that stage in my life. I yeah. think it often happens to older people tend to get bowel cancer more. Um, and I didn't have any symptoms, which is really worrying because you kind of assume, don't you, that if you're going to get something nasty in your body, there's going to be all these different signs that you need to be aware of. Mm. I had nothing. And I can remember I was a single mum and I was a working single mum and I had three jobs at the time. I was a cleaner of an evening I was cleaning offices and I was scrubbing loos on a weekend looking after my child and I remember the doctor saying to me are you tired I was like yeah Sherlock of course I'm tired you know this is my life um so you kind of overlook that as just part of everyday life but we need to look after ourselves we need to love ourselves more definitely Amanda has written a number of incredible books and uh, very kindly gave me some holiday reading I've been away for a couple of weeks in Cornwall and uh, Clover's Child is one of the many titles uh, is it I found it was very different to your other books. Yeah. Was that, was that a very conscious decision um, to do something very different? And it, perhaps you could maybe explain the story to our listeners. Well, the story of Clover's Child it's is beautiful. set in London in the 1960s. And it's a story of a young girl, Dot Simpson, who lives in the East End in a very poor working class family and falls in love with a young black West Indian guy who comes over with his family to the UK. 
And his family are absolutely horrified because she's a working class, poor white girl and they're very educated. And her family are horrified because uh, he's a black man and they don't know this world. And they're, you know, frightened for her, I guess. And their story is one of where they just fall deeply, deeply in love. And it's, they have this amazing connection, this beautiful, beautiful love affair that they feel like they're the only two people in the world that actually understand it because there's so much opposition to this relationship. Um, it's based on true events. It's based on a member of my family oh, who went really? through something very similar. Which is interesting you say it's got a different feel about it, Miranda. I wonder if that's what it is because it is semi-autobiographical. I wonder if that's ah, what it is. Yeah. And I find that where, whatever I'm writing about, whatever sort of... Um, era I'm writing about, whatever topic, I tend to have a slightly different voice. It's almost like I take on the character's voice and use that much more in the narrative as well. Yes. And I think it sets a better atmosphere. But your characters really do come to life when yeah. you're reading the books Thank and they're all so amazing and different that, you know, it just sucks you in. I do, I'm not just saying it because you're in the studio, but, you know, generally loved your stories. And when Dot and Soul meet... <laughs> For the first time. I, I mean, it's so funny as well yeah. as touching, isn't it? Well, that's so. one thing I do. I, I write about subjects that are quite dark, whether it's racism, whether it's postnatal yeah. depression, alcoholism. You know, they're not comedies, no. but actually they're peppered with humour because yeah. that's real life. You know, and that's certainly how me, my family are a big East End family, even though I've been in Bristol since I was 16 and I'm 50 now. I'm still apparently a newcomer, according to my husband, who was born in Bedminster. <laughs> but that's a whole other story for a whole other day. Yeah. Um, but basically, I think um, that humour is what gets us through really grotty, you know, rubbishy days. If you can find something that makes you smile, even just lifts you for a minute, it actually helps you get through some horrible stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can totally understand that. Now, what I have noticed with Clover's Child, it's not been picked up so much by the mainstream press. No. What do you think the reasons are for that? A fear. Yeah. Fear of the topic, um, an uncomfortable topic. I think a majority of people would rather not think about it, would rather not know about it. They're happier with something that's slightly safer ground. I think people, there are, very, there are many, many topics that make people feel slightly uncomfortable, but they're the ones we should be talking about. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. Mental health, yeah. racism, it doesn't matter what it is. They're the things we should be talking about. Talk about it, break the taboo. Absolutely, like you said earlier with cancer Absolutely. as well. You know, the more yeah. we need to talk about these things, the, mm -hmm. the more we get out of it. You know, we've just sort of, when you first came to, I mean, obviously, I, I say obviously, I, I've read your books before I even became really aware of who you were. I was watching The Right Stuff on Channel 5, oh, yeah. which you're often on the panel. Yes. And you really came to my attention. It was post-Brexit, and it was just, what you were saying was just a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. To actually hear somebody like yourself speaking your mind on mainstream media, you know, was really kind of what I thought, wow, what an incredible woman. But do you know what's funny, Miranda? I think that's why, I mean, I do, I do a lot of telly, I do a lot of radio, and I think the reason I do is because I'm sort of, I'm just a very ordinary wife and mum. And I'm not the sharpest tool in the box. I'm not the cleverest. I'm not the most educated, certainly. So I'm just really saying what we're talking about in the supermarket. You know, what we're chatting to when we're bumping into each other in the Gloucester Road and having a cup of coffee. I'm just talking about that stuff, but as though I'm in my front room. I just happen to be on telly. And I think that's why people are picking up on it. Because, it works, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the whole referendum and what was going on before the result was just... And all the toxic... Racism and, and all that is a it's, great word. I it was that. though, wasn't yeah, it? You know, it was. and I had an incredible lady in the day that the referendum result was announced. Asha Craig, she's the Europe, European first Rastafarian councillor. She came in and she was just flawed. You know, she's yeah. an incredible woman, um, and she's not the sort of person to be down, but she was. 
you know, she just felt absolutely flawed. Um, a couple of months on, how are you feeling about what happened and the result and how does it you feel it affects you well from a very personal experience yeah. I'm devastated by the results sickened to my stomach because it's not a world I wanted my kids to grow up in this divided divisive uh, you know politically motivated feardom that I think has come and swamped us I think it's petrifying uh, the good thing that's come out of it is that it seems to be happening. Any change, any drama seems to be a lot slower than maybe I'd thought because I was genuinely worried that within days, weeks, it would be this, yes. you know, this absolute avalanche of change and these, and these you know, very uh, sort of structured things that we had no say in. And I think it's, I, I, it's a really difficult one because I walk the line. I understand that we have a democracy. I'm very proud to live in a democracy where I'm able to speak my mind, where we have, you know, a certain amount of freedom of speech um, <laughs> but I'm also finding it petrifying that when half the population are vehemently passionately strongly against something they have no voice because it's happened it's gone through it's like well that can't be right can it surely there no. must be margins maybe if it was you know a huge enough uh, majority but to be bang in the middle that means half of our, our nation is not being represented their voice is not being heard. That frightens me. It is very scary, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. No, I, to I totally agree. I, I just, what, what I was kind of surprised, because I was the same as you, I felt like the next day suddenly everything was going to change. Yeah. But we didn't know how it was going to change. No. And uh, then I heard about this article, I've forgotten what it was now, 50, 51, 51 yep. that needed to be triggered. And then I thought, will there actually be a prime minister that has the bottle to do that? You know, and I thought there's so much to take on and it's going to take so long that you know, that fear for me has slightly dissipated. But Jill and I had a very interesting discussion as well after that, weren't we, about how it might affect musicians. Yeah. And it's all this change, you know, when we are going around Europe playing at all the different festivals, you know, if you're a DJ or a musician, how on earth that will affect them as well yeah. um, and it's just that that unknown isn't it yeah it it's is and, and, I, and I just feel you know you see all the the sort of sensational headlines you know in the in the, the daily mail which isn't a paper i read but it's one i look at can sure. i say because For i think it's reasons, important absolutely. to be informed yes. Yes. and i think it's just such it's such scaremongery if you only read that mm. and didn't actually look at what was actually happening issue, you'd be the, petrified yeah yeah i think the the for me because my family's half black half white so and mm. um, for me racism has always been there so it, yep. it, i mean i think that perhaps it's a good thing for white people to really acknowledge actually we do live in quite a racist society oh, in England and, and we sort of you know we like to believe that it's all nice and equal and all the rest of it but actually it isn't though is it it's insipid the, the racism that I experience or my family experience it, it's insipid it's it's subtle and and, but, and also I, but it's not only unequal for, for races it's unequal for the poor yes you absolutely. know people who are very yeah. very poor yes. and struggling yeah, yeah. regardless yeah. of skin color yes. faith yeah. creed it doesn't yeah. matter if you're poor mm. and there are people making decisions who have never known what it's like to have to choose between eating that day, giving your kids meat, or going without food for mm -hmm. two days. Mm -hmm. How can we have people making decisions about our life, our future, our country, who have never had to face those challenges? It blows my mind to think that that is the, the, the elite, so-called, in our society, who are trying to make these very, very fundamental decisions about how we're going to live our life without actually understanding what it's like to live our life. Absolutely. That really worries me. And also, we've got three single mums here all yes. in the studio. <laughs> and we often get sort of penalised. Um, I mean, you worked as a single mum. Yeah. I don't know how you managed to do it. I'm a single mum and I just... 
my I had to make a very conscious decision. Do I work and never see my son oh. or or do I quit everything and be incredibly poor and at least have a chance to bring up my son, which was a decision how I horrific, had to make. How horrific you're having to make those yes. decisions. Yes. When you're doing the no greatest family. job no in the doubt. world. You're yeah. growing a baby human. You're yeah. bringing this beautiful citizen into yeah. the world and penalised for it. Yeah, I had to give it. I had an incredibly successful career and then had to give it all up. Oh, you know, and I know, Jill, you've, you've had it incredibly hard as well with no family. A lot of people were so rely on their family. This is G-Product Full Cycle Records and I always keep it locked to the word Miranda Ujima 98 FM. you're listening you've only just tuned in we were talking to Amanda earlier about how you were diagnosed with cancer and that you survived it three times yes that I just I mean once is enough to go through that three times what's then the most important thing to you in life is Uh, it time it's time and love it's the people around me that I love and getting every minute I can with them and it sounds so corny but I want to do nothing more than just sit with the people I love have a cup of tea talk to them just talking to people is just the biggest joy it's the best thing you can share and you know and I look at people I've lost you know grandparents who've all died of you know as they as they should grown old had a beautiful life with lovely family and they've passed away what wouldn't you give for just one more day and I think we need to look at our lives as one more day we need to think this is the day I've got who do I want to talk to I just spend time with my family hang out with my kids if they let me they're not that keen but I'm keener let me tell you um but yeah, uh, how old are your kids 19 just, and 20 19 they're and 20 brilliant. so yeah. they're probably out there festivaling and traveling the world I yeah take it. they've yeah. been traveling back from Reading Festival quite recently not quite recovered I haven't seen them for three days I think they're in are they some yeah <laughs> we think they're in it smells like they're in that's all I can say uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I haven't seen them. They just they emerge for food and then go back to their room like oh, that's bears. Exactly how I used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah no fair play. <laughs> it feels like only yesterday. So, and uh, you're a local girl. Yeah, that's you were brought up in the East End of London. Yeah. and then what brought you to Bristol? My dad's job. Ah. My dad got a job in a factory over in Newport. Right, and we ended up living in uh, Thornbury, which yeah. I think was because I think we got into a school near Thornbury or something. There's lots of us. I've Little brothers, and um, they took us all, went to school in Thornbury, so did my education there. Um, and so, yeah, I've been here since I was 16. Um, and I love it, there's nowhere else. And now it's quite odd because Simeon, my husband, as I say, is Bristol born and bred, and so are our boys. Um, we really we thought, well, actually, why are we tied to Bristol? We can live anywhere in the world. Because I work from a laptop on my lap, you know, in the back of a bus or in a car, it doesn't matter. And we literally travelled around, we looked at lots of other countries, and we decided that Bristol is the place we want to be. It's Yay. got, it's beautiful, <laughs> it's got everything we need. It feels great, it's got so much, I mean, free festivals like nowhere else on earth. Where else can you get a free harbour festival? See the balloons from your back garden. Be at the seaside in Western Supermare in half an hour if traffic's all right. You know, walk on the downs, just picnic. That walk around the harbour side on a summer's evening, it could be the Riviera. Is it just me or is it everybody's dream to write a book? I've always been that thing. I'd love one day. I would love to write a book. And my mum did it, and she died just before she finished the ending. Maybe I'll ask you to finish the ending for her. But it's an incredible story, and I've always said one day I'd like to do it. You know, do you think it's something anybody can do, or do you need to be educated and? It's something anyone can do, and it doesn't matter what your level of education. You don't have to write the next bestseller. You know, you don't have to write the next Fifty Shades of Grey. It doesn't have to be Harry Potter. You can sit down and write something from your heart that you want to get down. Yeah. No one cares about your grammar. No one cares whether you've got a great vocabulary. Write true, write from your heart, and it'll be something people want to read. And, and it, might, it might be a paragraph. 
Might be you sure. might you might wake up, look out over those chimney pots of where you live, and think, I want to just describe that when the sun hits it. You might look at your newborn baby's face. Because that's what you think, do. Yeah, you describe things beautifully as well. You. you know, it's not just about the characters and what's going on. There's yeah. a descriptive element there that which is beautiful and Thank it really you. sucks you in, and that's what makes the characters come alive yeah. as well because of that description. Um, so you think, sorry, I was just sort of going back to so something that anybody can do. Mm. Um, Jill, what about you? Have you ever thought about being a writer? Yes, I have, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I reckon when I did my MA, one. I thought I could never write 20,000 words and at 28,000 words and I was still going, I thought, oh, crikey, maybe I can write a book, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my challenge was that my supervisor said, no, you need you have to do it in twenty. So I had to then be very careful so, and go that's back. That's the hardest and, thing. And Culling back. your work is like you know. pack. Yeah, yeah. So you are also with your first book was it called Poppy Poppy Day? Yeah. Um, now, am I right in saying that you couldn't get that published? You you kept getting knocked back. I got probably 80 credible knockbacks so that's people who have actually had a look at it which is rare you know in, in my industry to get people to look at your work is some of the hardest things to, that's the hardest barrier to get over um so i did i did what a lot of us do you know i went online i found uh, names of agents and publishers i sent that book everywhere miranda literally and saying would you like to read it can you read it no loads of people said to me no one wants to read a book set in london and afghanistan it's not something we're interested in you know good luck and thank you just to say the story is based upon a military wife um her husband is kidnapped and held hostage in afghanistan and yeah. they say that that's not of interest they said it wasn't <laughs> of interest and i was like okay so i really believed in this book i really had faith in the story and i just wanted to see one book in print i thought even oh. if no one buys it even if i never do another word just to see one book in print would for me have been a massive goal achieved and so in the end we self-published it and it was a really scrappy little edition it was quite small and it was full of errors and mistakes which people were keen to point out to me still which is quite funny um and it was it was pretty grotty actually but it was a lovely story and it sold like hotcakes and once wow. it started selling people started talking about it and of course then more people bought it and it just went crazy and then I got picked up by an agent and a publisher funny once I'd had that success funny yeah. and they knocked on my door was that uh, do you think that was a difficulty for being a female writer particularly I think it's harder for women certainly um but I think also the readership of women tends to be incredibly loyal once you get there yeah yes. so no, it's a double-sided yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that fair? I think that's a probably... A, yeah, you know, no, absolutely. So, um, and am I right in saying you then donated all the um, all the profits to the British Legion? It goes to a centre um, for soldiers who have come back uh, injured or with life-changing injuries. That's incredible. Yeah. That, your BFF, shall we say, is none other than uh, Countdown's supremo, Carol Vorderman. Carol Vorderman is my best friend. Yeah. That's amazing. How did that come about? I met her in the street. I usually say I met her in prison, but I didn't actually. The trouble is, I said as a joke once, I met her in prison, and then the next thing I know, you know, Daily Mail, Daily Star, run a story, yeah. Vorderman's prison nightmare. But no, that's not how I met her. Um, I met her in the street, and I saw this lady, and you know when you see someone off the telly, and you think they're vaguely familiar, and you think you sort of know them, but you don't know where you know them from. So you go, oh, hello. So we started chatting. I talked to anyone anyway. You know, I travel by bus. I'm well known for being a bus per Everyone chats <laughs> me on the bus. Um, anyway, I started chatting to her, and she looked very glamorous. And I said, oh, you look lovely. And she said, oh, she said, some people have won a competition, and I'm taking them out for lunch. So I said, oh, what was second prize? Two lunches. And 
we just hit it off. That was it. And we are literally, we are chalk and cheese. We are so completely different. In ev- every aspect of our life is just completely different. But for some reason, it really works. And, you know, I've known, well, we've been best friends for over a decade. And I know her inside out, back to front. She knows all my secrets and she still likes me, which is a good sign. Oh, that's amazing. And um, we're just really, really good mates. I love her, yeah. She does, I have to say, she comes over as one of those people that does seem really genuine. And she, again, another incredibly powerful woman mm. you know she was um i mean on countdown it was almost like it was the first woman who had any brains yeah that you know to be in that position and and that's it was almost like how they promoted her wasn't it which is a shame that it, it has to be like that and i tell you what's the most amazing thing about and a woman that can actually do sums it's incredible i tell you what's the most amazing thing about carol though and i know she won't mind me saying this is that she grew up in an environment where she had to share a double bed with her mum and her sister where they didn't have enough to eat every day, where they got a chicken for Christmas because it was a, a huge deal to have meat. You know, she grew up in, in really, really poor circumstances. She went to a rough school in North Wales where no one went to university. No one had a higher education. A, because they couldn't afford it, they would go and start working. And B, because there just wasn't that opportunity. That whole mentality wasn't there. She went to Cambridge this girl got herself amazing. to Cambridge, you know, in that environment. She's she's incredible. That is amazing. And do you know what? Now I've found out that, you, well, you mentioned to me that she was flying. And I thought, well, you know, that's maybe what you do when you get a little bit successful, a little bit of money. You learn to fly. She's not just flying for fun. She's flying great big Airbuses. I saw her on the tally recently. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. No. She's buying, yeah. I mean, that's And I tell you what, we were sitting there one day. Blowing. She just turned 50. And she's 104 now. But she just turned 50. <laughs> And she mm-hmm. said, she said, you know what? I've al- she'd always wanted to fly. She'd always wanted to fly Amazing a plane. But it wasn't, for someone like her, it wasn't an opportunity. You know, of course not. Who can? How do you just go and fly a plane? Who does that? Um, um, but she decided she wanted to learn and she's done it. And now she's doing this solo around the world flight, which is next year, leaves in July. But already the level of training she's had, the level of skill yeah. she's got, puts her at like commercial pilot level. She's done it in a couple of years. She's yeah, incredible. No, it's I'm phenomenal, so isn't it? Yeah, I was watching her on television very recently flying mm. this great big Airbus. Um, and it was about, she was talking about where she came from and yeah. how she was flying over the parts of Wales. Because mm. that was the only industry where That's she it. lived yeah. was um, the aerospace, I think it was. Yeah, and she was it? told it wasn't for her. You know, girls didn't do that. Yes. Girls didn't do that. Girls were just oh, well, probably... I had the same. Oh, you know, when you're talking to young people now who have opportunities, and it's like music colleges, and we didn't have those when I was younger. Yeah. And even things, like working for the family business I wasn't allowed to do that because I was a girl I couldn't work in audio or video or TV because I couldn't carry the equipment you know this is only 20 years ago yeah. we're talking about mm. I was the first female DJ who had a full time job on the radio in the country That's and this amazing, was only Amanda. in 1992 you That's know not amazing. the 50s not no. the 60s yeah. and you know what I still find incredibly hard as well is that women aren't even getting equal pay no still I mean how do you feel about that when I think you hear that? <laughs> how long have we got how long have we got to discuss this? Couple of hours? Yeah. How can it be that just because you haven't got a penis determines how much <laughs> cash you earn to take home every month? How does that become a factor? And how has it been allowed to happen? How has and it? How, and how is it still going on? Because yet again, we're going back to the thing we were touching on earlier, that there are people controlling big businesses, controlling industry, running councils who have no idea what it's like 
to live our lives. That's the trouble. Yeah. There's no, they don't have empathy, so therefore they can't have sympathy because they don't understand it. And what we need to do is make sure that any woman in any position of power, whether you are a teacher, a mother, a friend, a sister, you pull the other, your women up. You pull them up the ladder with you. You don't pull that ladder up when you've got to where you want to go. You reach down, you take the hand of the woman below you and you pull them up. That's such an amazing thing to see. We now have Marvin Rees, who's one of the first black mayors in Europe. Yeah, and he's doing that with yeah. the BME community Absolutely. and pulling them up. Mm. But you see, even he was shocked when he heard that I couldn't work as a single mum. He said, well, what do you mean? Why not? When you explain about there's no childcare, I had no option. I've just turned down two breakfast show jobs on huge commercial stations no, because no. I haven't got any childcare yeah. and I can't, you know. And it's just people that are shocked that that's the way it is. Like, well, surely you've got a member of family. Because on, well, paper, no, on paper, everything's possible. Yeah. On paper, in theory, everything looks ideal, doesn't it? Well, you can yeah. do that. You can just, just get childcare, just yeah. get a job. Yeah. Just it, There's no just about it. No. Life is very, very hard. And that's why we all need to support each other. We need to love who we are. We need to love the people we're standing next to. And we need to do everything we can to encompass our community and those we love. Make them safe, keep them safe and push them up. Everyone pushing up constantly. That's how we get change. And um, out of all the books that you've written, is there a favourite? Clover's Child. It is. It's always been my favourite book and it always will be because it's set in, I can tell you, I haven't actually shared this, but it's it's set in my grandma's house. Oh, wow. So that house in Limehouse where it's set is my grandma's house. My granddad worked in Limehouse docks as does the main character. Um, My nan was a cook in a pub so... Yeah, you don't need too much imagination to work out well, so yeah. which member of my family this book was kind of about but it's uh, yeah it's semi-autobiographical and I love it for that because when I read it when I look at, uh, at the read the descriptions of walking through those doors I'm back in my nan's kitchen oh. where I was just loved you know that feeling when yeah. your nan just loves you and just wants to feed you and just make sure you're warm and, and the only feeling she ever has for you is your well-being you never have it's so rare to have that from anyone else in your life yeah. that unconditional just like arms around you love and I remember it now and it's nurtured my soul and it made me the person I am going forward that love I got from my nan and granddad definitely 